Hello and welcome to the Living Heritage Podcast, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep history alive at the community level. I'm Tara Barrett, ICH researcher with Heritage NL. On today's episode of the podcast, we have Celeste Colburn. Celeste is a weaver who was introduced to the intricacies of making yarn, threading a loom, and creating beautiful cloth 28 years ago in BC. Over the years, miles of handwoven cloth have been woven and sold in almost every province. And now she is home, weaving in Newfoundland. Hi, Celeste, and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for inviting me. So just to start off, can you give us a little bit on your background in weaving and what, what kind of, how you got your start in textile arts? Um, long time ago, 1994 now, I um, moved to a farm and the mother of a friend of my daughter's was raising these rabbits and said that I needed to have rabbits for manure for the farm so I could have good gardens. So I went over and chose four of her little rabbits and installed them in a huge rabbit tree. And within one month, they grew and grew and grew and had this massive coat of fur. So I went to check and find out if they were, if they were okay, if there was something wrong with them, because I'd never seen anything like this. And she said, oh no, they're Angora rabbits and here's their parents and you just have to pluck the fur and I can take you to the Sunshine Coast Spinners and Weavers Guild and we can teach you how to spin. So then my mother-in-law came along with this broken down old spinning wheel and I took it to the guild and these marvelous ladies showed me how to fix the wheel and literally how to spin Angora, which is very difficult. And I spent probably... Uh, several months making angora rope which was a real waste because I had no clue how to spin and eventually I fine-tuned my skills joined the guild and within six months I had an opportunity to take a floral loom weaving course from one of the ladies Barbie Paulus who had a studio full of looms so I sat in her studio for a week and learned everything she could teach me for a week and I was off and I had an opportunity to purchase a pile of lumber that was an old loom. And I had no clue how to put it together. And my son, who was 10 at the time, figured out how to build this giant old loom, never having seen anything. It was a barn loom, so big that they don't put them in houses, they install them in barns. Built for a lady named Honey Hoover, who was very tall. I'm not. And it had a built-in seat, so it was like climbing a ladder to get onto the loom. And I had it in my living room and I learned how to weave on it. And I took many, many courses through the local guild and taught all the neighborhood children how to weave. Because <laughs> they'd come and climb up on the bench and sit beside me and weave. Yeah. Wow. And so did your son also learn how to weave at that time? Yes, he certainly did. And I had spinning wheels and he, he self-taught himself how to spin as well. So I'd have the ladies over, some of the guild members would come for tea and we'd have a spin in. And my son, Brian, sat down and he'd be sitting there spinning away. It's like, oh, my goodness, you know. Yeah. And I guess what I mean, I, I know kind of how it how you got started, but what drew you to continue uh, weaving and continue with fiber arts? A love of working with fiber and the weaving is very math related. So it looks all fun and games when you're weaving and everything's all pretty and you're making cloth. But to get to that point, you have to do massive amounts of math, which I'm absolutely terrible at. So it's a struggle for me. Yeah, I was actually kicked out of my grade eight math class. My teacher said I couldn't learn. And I'm actually, there's a 
whatever it's numerically called, it's dyslexia from numbers. I switch them. So it's a big challenge all the time. So I guess maybe that's why I continued was because I'm up for facing the challenge. And can you, uh, I guess, talk me through the process of, of making something woven? What um, how, kind of from start to finish, I know you can't really talk through all of it, but can, can you take me through what the, what the process is? So it starts with um, an idea. So what I'm doing right now on the loom behind me, which of course you can't see if it's audio, um, it's a red wool and white rayon table runners. So I'm making a series of these things. And so you have to choose your yarns, choose a pattern, and there are literally millions, countless numbers of patterns available. Um, I look at handweaving.net to choose a pattern and decide what I'm going to use the yarns for. And then you have to determine the length of it, the width of it, how hard you're going to beat it, how tight you're going to make the cloth, how long you're going to make it um, after it's finished being woven and then washed. And then you have to figure out what you're going to do to the ends of it to fasten the ends or hem it or whatever. And that's basically the process. And then so you start with all these little fine threads. Um, I use a mill that I wind the warp onto. The long threads are called warp. And so I wind my warp on the mill and then transfer it from the mill over onto the loom, tie it on, wind it on the loom, thread the heddles, which are the little wires where the um, yarns go through, and then thread the reed, which is the part that makes the cloth tight at the front, and then tie it onto what's called the cloth beam at the front, and then start weaving. And so there was a lot of uh, technical terms there. So what are some of the skills that you need in, in order to be able to weave, uh, to weave something? <laughs> skills. Number one is patience <laughs> and the ability to go back over and over and over again over your work. If you're going to be a good weaver, you have to be a good unweaver. So you make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time. And you have to be able to unweave to fix them and then reweave the cloth. And then once it's finished being woven, you have to be able to take it off and go over. It's called burling. Go over the whole thing and check for any kind of errors because there can be errors as well yeah so skills i think patience is number one persistence <laughs> the ability to count and to be able to determine um if a pattern that you found that you want to use is exactly what you can manage because now i'm almost 70 and my ability to um, work on a pattern that has a great amount of complexity has diminished. I get lost in it easily. So I'm sort of narrowing myself down to being, you know, less complicated patterns. Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit, I know um, you mentioned kind of when you were in BC, you actually uh, ran a, sh opened a store and, and ran a shop there. Can you talk a little bit about that experience as well? Certainly. Um, after about six months of being a member of this guild, I determined that the, we had, the guild had 67 members on the Sunshine Coast, that there was very little places for people to get supplies. And I had been a commercial fisherwoman for 20 years. And so I had um, retired from fishing because of the downturn in the salmon industry there. 
and I needed something to focus on. And I thought, well, why not open a store? <laughs> so I contacted suppliers all over the world and asked if they would be interested in having their products sold through my store. So many of them said yes. And then I found a friend who had an antique store in Gibson's who had an open space, like a loft space in it. And she said, oh yeah, yeah, you can rent that from me and uh, move your looms and whatever in. And so that's exactly what I did. And so I set up and then month by month, I contacted other suppliers and had uh, goods from all over the world. And then I would uh, pack all my goodies in great big crates and stick them in my van and drive all throughout BC and Alberta to guild events and to um, Fiber Week at Olds Alberta, which is a big teaching week for master spinners and weavers and set up shop and go to, you know, events wherever I could find them and reach out to people that way. And that's how I found apprentices wanted to come and stay on my farm and work in the store and learn weaving and spinning and the husbandry of Angora rabbits, <laughs> all the things that were required to make it all come together. And I guess you just mentioned the rabbits again. So is that something you continued uh, throughout your practice of weaving or is that something like, do you no. still have wabbit, rabbits? Wabbits, I have I know. Them. <laughs> <laughs> I had them for 10 years. But um, I left British Columbia and moved to Ontario and I couldn't keep um, raising rabbits. At one point I had 24, which was a massive undertaking to brush them out weekly and um, pull their fur instead of cut it. You, they, um, it's harvestable every 30 days. So you just gently groom over the rabbit and out comes handfuls of lovely fluff. And so I did that for 10 years. And eventually you gave them away to other people that wanted to have rabbits in their life. And I was just curious, because you mentioned kind of your, your shop in BC and how there wasn't much materials or, or, or access to materials was a bit difficult at that time. And I'm curious, now that you're living in Newfoundland, is how is the access to materials? Is it, you know, I guess, is it, are you able to get things that you need or is it, uh, is it mostly online shopping? How do you find the materials that you need? It's almost entirely online shopping. Yeah. I contact suppliers and ask, you know, for what I need and then they'll send them in the mail. Yeah. And what community are you living in? Like, is there anything nearby that you can, uh, any, any places nearby that you can shop at or? No? Not at all. I'm in, I'm in Grand Bank. And so if I went into St. John's, I possibly could. I've just, <clears throat> excuse me, recently in the last couple of days connected with Megan Sams. And so hopefully I'll be able to connect with her more and find out more about, you know, what she knows about the farming, the husbandry of sheep here in particular. And so I can get fleeces because I still have a spinning wheel as well. And so I could still spin. Actually, when you when you mentioned kind of the farm and having apprentices on the farm, Megan Sams came to mind because she's taking on an apprentice and, and on the farm and all of that. So I was thinking about that as well. So that's great that you guys have connected. Yeah, it's a win-win for everybody around, you know, like you're teaching hands-on what you know. And uh, my experience with the teaching is the more you teach, the more you solidify your own knowledge. And so one of the things I did when I was in the store was um, once a year, I'd go into the grade eight classes in the high school and uh, teach a unit on the Industrial Revolution to all these 
wild and wonderful grade eight students who had no patience for an old woman with a spinning wheel and a pile of fleece that I'd just go in and dump out of a bag. I used to help with the sheep shearing, so I'd get really good fleeces for sheep for um, spinning rather. So I'd take the fleece out and show them how the wool combs worked and how the spinning wheel worked and a small loom and show them how weaving went. And by the time I was finished, a lot of them were very interested. Some of them were asleep, but a lot of them were very interested. And um, the premise was the Industrial Revolution changed the lives of the itinerant weavers who went from town to town with their reeds and would set up in a barn on a loom and weave the yarn that the woman spun over the remainder of the year. They'd weave it into coverlets and cloth that was essential bags for storing things and whatever. And then they'd go to the next town. Well, the industrial revolution took that all away and put all the looms, big looms, big industrial looms into huge complexes. And so all of that home-based business was no longer necessary. So teach the kids all about that and then tell them, hey, look at your clothes. Most of your clothing is woven. And unless they're wearing either leather or something, you know, man-made fibers, they're all hand done somewhere, somewhere along the line, somebody's shorn a sheep and spun the wool and woven it or picked cotton and done the same thing. Yeah. And I guess, do you know much about the history of weaving in Canada or in, in BC or in Newfoundland? I've learned a little bit about the history of weaving in Newfoundland. My family is um, originally from Twillingate and Fogo. My grandmother on Fogo, she had been a spinner, or had been a weaver rather. And my um, mother's family is from New Brunswick and the women were all spinners and weavers. And so I've learned a bit sort of hands-on from that angle. I learned about the Jubilee Guild when I came here. I didn't know about them before I came. But I, you know, kudos to those women that went to all the outports and taught the people that were interested in how to raise the sheep for spinning and to spin the yarn and weave it. It's amazing. And then the history of the fiber arts in, say, British Columbia, um, there was a huge enclave of Russian immigrants called Dukabors that came. And so they would carry their spinning wheels, they walked, and they carried their spinning wheels on their backs and traveled all throughout the lower mainland in BC and set up um, in 100 mile house and throughout areas up into British Columbia into the central interior, set up settlements and they were all spinners and weavers as well. So their culture is still alive. There's a lot of people there that are still spinning and weaving as a result of them coming. And so, yeah, I learned, you know, a little bit about, you know, local uh, kind of imports of people coming. I had also, there was a native culture there. Um, and a man, of course, and a man came to me and asked me if I would spin mountain goat fiber for him as a potlatch gift. And so that was very powerful experiences, really rough, coarse fiber and some of it was very soft down and I managed to spin kind of a rope for him and he was absolutely thrilled for it because he was able to then attend a potlatch and gift that. Mm -hmm. That sounds yeah that sounds like a, a wonderful experience. They're very powerful. And I guess where you've mentioned uh, the difference between the goat and the rabbit um, you also mentioned that you've 
uh, use sheep wool and spun that as well. Is there any other materials that you've used? I, I wouldn't have thought there was many more, but are there any others that you've used? Definitely kiviat from muskox. Very, very soft, 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 soft. Lots of llama and alpaca. I've come across many llama and alpaca farms in British Columbia and bought roving from them for my store and then ended up spinning mountains of it and weaving with that. And it's also buttery soft. And lots of dog fur, they call it Shangora. And so I've spun much mountains of dogs. <laughs> yeah. And is there is there, I guess, a material that you that you enjoy working with the best? Or are there um, I guess creations, you know, woven objects that you like kind of working on? Yes. Among my favorites is silk. And so silk is very awkward to spin. It's very sticky. It's like cobwebs and they stick to your hands terribly. But I love working with it. It's like once the cloth is woven, it's light and airy. And of course, you won't see this in the audio, but I'll get up and show you. This is um, something I've just woven, part of the series of table runners. This is a silk and rayon table runner, and it is as light as air. It's absolutely gorgeous. And so this kind of thing, really appeals to me mm -hmm. so for listeners it's like a it's a, 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 a relatively large I guess tablecloth but uh, the way you're moving it you can see um, just how light it is and how um, soft it likely is yes yeah it's very it's it's a little bit um, it's soft but it's airy I don't know how, how to describe it but it'll it's um, going to go to uh, Oceanside California <laughs> Yeah. And I guess uh, now that you've mentioned that, um, where do you sell most of your wares, like, uh, or most of your woven goods? Yes, now I'm here. Um, I'm offering my work for sale at the Craft Council shop on Water Street in St. John's. I have some items for sale at Kings Point Pottery in Kings Point, and people can contact me directly, either through Facebook and or by calling me to order things. It's called bespoke weaving. So people tell me what they want and then we organize whatever colors or textures or width or length of the items, or they can buy things that are made. And, and have you connected with uh, much of the weaving community in uh, Newfoundland now that you're here? No, there's, a, to my knowledge, there's not a lot of weavers. And so I've connected with some, certainly, but, you know, I'm used to working with guilds that have like 200 people and, or, you know, and so it's a different environment here because partially um, distance is quite massive. And so, you know, it's a extended travel, but I've had people when I, I've just recently moved to Grand Bank this year, last year in the summer, and I lived in La Cie for the 11 years prior to that. I had people come from all over the island come to visit. And so that was great. People came to me. I had a bed and breakfast. And so they'd come in the door and discover that I was a weaver and go, yay, and, you know, off we went. And so it was marvelous to connect with people that way as well. So it's now that I moved closer to St. John's, I hope to meet more people because I understand the Anna Templeton Center has inspired and taught many people. And so there's bound to be more weavers there. I tried at one point, there was a Women's Institute in Springdale 
I was told was, you know, full of weavers, but I went and there was um, just a couple of people that were still weaving. They were more interested in long arm quilting at the time. And so they were, had changed their focus, but I was drooling over their room full of all these looms that were empty. <laughs> and thinking, oh, I could teach somebody and they could move in there and, you know, so we'll see, see what happens. And what kind of loom are you currently working with? This one that you're seeing behind me is made by Leclerc Looms. It's called a Colonial and it's their original model. It was built, I believe the label says 1979. So it's an antique like me. It um, is eight harnesses or eight shafts rather, the parts that go up and down that the threads go through. And it's 45 inches wide in the weaving width and it's about uh, six feet tall. And I guess how, you know, you mentioned kind of that first loom that you had that you purchased that your, your son put together for you. Um, how does your practice change depending on what kind of loom you're working on? Does that affect kind of what you can make or what you, what you choose to make? Yes, it certainly does. Um, I've woven quite a few rugs with this loom. You have to have a very large solid piece of equipment in order to weave rugs. The noise you're hearing in the background, the dinging, that's my dog's collar banging on her water bowl. Um, I, I was thinking it was a dog. I have two dogs here, so I was thinking that was a dog in the background. And Zoe. Yeah, so, and the lighter weight looms are good for scarves and tea towels and that sort of thing. The loom that I got from Honey Hoover, it was made for weaving rugs and coverlets and, you know, massive pieces of uh, cloth but it was the same size as this one. So the weaving width was the same. But this one here, um, it's not heavy enough to weave a lot of rugs because you have to really beat them hard to make them solid. And when we first started talking, we talked a little bit about the, the future of weaving. So I guess, where do you see the future of weaving in and how do you see it unfolding? Yeah, for me, the important thing is there's a lot of intrinsic knowledge, like you're asking me, you know, what you need to know to be able to do this and so forth. Um, much of it is oral knowledge. It's written somewhere in books, but a lot of people don't have the patience to sit and read a book to find it. So the oral um, history, the background, where to find things, how to find your patterns, how to determine everything you need to do needs to be passed on. So I believe the future of weaving is teaching other people that will take this knowledge forwards, just like I was taught. And I learned, you know, in midlife kind of thing. And, you know, it would have been great if I'd learned a lot earlier. And, but I didn't have the knowledge that my relatives were weavers and spinners. And so I couldn't ask. And so, you know, they were literally little old ladies with strings sitting in a bedroom somewhere and nobody knew what they were doing. And so in my experience, having gone in the schools and shown many grades of students, many years of grade eight students rather, how to deal with this, I believe that that was an insight for them that if they would choose to take it further, that would be wonderful. Um, places like the Anna Templeton Center being set up and having classes come is wonderful. With COVID, it's a challenge because you're working side by side very closely with someone. It's like playing a duet on the piano to start with. So you have to be super careful about contact. But I think going forward that, you know, people will be interested in learning, of course, 
and there will be places for them to either come and learn. Um, I have many friends that live in Europe and there are actually stores and studios set up there where you can go in and it's just like going into an Ikea or whatever, go in and sit down at a loom and weave off a run of, you know, this year's tea towels or, you know, whatever you want. Yeah. And you just pay for the yarn and pay for some lessons, go in, sit down, do it and leave. You don't have to own the equipment. So I think that would be a real bonus if people were able to access places like that. That sounds like an incredible option. I was just thinking uh, this is kind of a tangent, but I, I brew beer and um, I have the equipment in my house, which is great. But there's a, a local store here that offers, like, if you want to come in, you can brew beer or you can make wine. You don't have to have mm -hmm. the space. You don't have to, you know, have that take up, uh, you know, space in your house and have it uh, like tucked in your closet like I usually do. You know, it's it's a, it's a space that you can go and make it there. So the ability to do that with weaving sounds incredible. Yeah, especially for yeah. people, like you said, who don't necessarily know uh, too much about it, but are interested in it. And then they don't have to invest a lot of money in it, but can can try it out. That's right. And you can have oh, someone like me in charge a weaving mentor. So somebody's there to answer questions and give direction. But you're not having somebody stand over you the whole time. And there's no exam at the end kind of thing. You're just going to make what you're what you want. You know, and I mean, a lot of people want cloth to sew with, you know, I mean, where your clothes come from. So, and you're going to go to the store and you're going to buy cloth that was made in China. Well, the way I feel, we should keep it local and do as much as we can here and, you know, teach people here how to deal with this. Yeah. Especially if, you know, people want to raise animals, if there's llamas or sheep or, you know, whatever, or even import silkworms and grow mulberry trees and feed them, you know, like, yeah, do it. Yeah, and it is interesting because we we have traditionally uh, in the province had like kept sheep and, and kept animals. So there's certainly been that history. So, um, uh, you know, there's no reason why we, we wouldn't be able to uh, use sheep and, and spin wool and, and weave it. Um, it's just, yeah, perhaps we've gotten a, a bit away from that, a bit a generation away from that or, or two. Yeah, that's the thing, right? So... Unfortunately, by the third generation along, a lot of the knowledge is missed. And so the fine points of things are missing because those people are gone now. And so unless they had you know, good written records or even videos of what they were doing, you know, like then there's no knowledge to pass on. So I think we have, it has to be a current thing. We have to teach the next generation and not sort of hope that the grandchildren will come along and do it. But, you know, it's the children. I taught both my kids how to weave. And uh, they were, you know, not stuck with it. But they certainly know how if they ever need to do it, you know. So, yeah. And I think that, like, we can have trade embargoes on things like we have with the seal here. And, you know, stuff then ends up being losing knowledge. So it's nice to be able to share that knowledge. Keep it current. And is there anything else that you think that listeners should know or people should know about weaving um, either the practice or, you know, particularly to Newfoundland or uh, your own experience with it? Yeah. The one thing I'd, I'd like to say, and this would be my favorite closing is because of the nature of cloth and us as weavers, we make that cloth 
and then it gets turned into things and used and can be used for generations. Things that are woven are not necessarily disposable, so they can be passed down and, you know, there can be an inheritance in what you have. But basically, look at what you're wearing, because if that cloth has any kind of webbing to it, it's been woven. And so basically, look at yourself and thank a weaver, because without weavers, we'd all be naked. <laughs> Or <laughs> well, that's a great way to end it. <laughs> Thank yeah. a weaver, so because you have clothes. <laughs> yeah, <It's> reality. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. You're very welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.